right? Yeah, boy, it's great to be here. You know, when people come and guest speak or at wherever I'm going to church, uh, lots of times they don't even introduce themselves. They just get up there and talk. So and I'll be sitting out there in the crowd saying, who is this clown, right? No, I'm sure you're not. You're saying, who, who is this man of God? It's probably what you're thinking. But if I was out there, I'd be thinking, who is this clown, right? Well, my name is Chris Estes, and uh, I actually wrote down who I am in case I don't remember. And I was born and raised in upstate New York, but I got here as fast as I could. I got to Texas as fast as I could. I've been here for about 30 years. And uh, I've been married to my lovely wife, Pat, who the world knows as Pooh, for the last 27 years. I recently celebrated 30 years in the outdoor advertising business, putting his with my friend Lop McElhaney over here for part of it and being good friends with him for, for years as well. And... Uh, I'm currently in the process of pursuing a second career as a uh, aspiring Methodist licensed local pastor. So I'm in that process right now. My initial uh, connection around here to David and to Scott and to Daryl and to Michael was through the quarry, which is on Thursday nights for the last several years. We get together for a discipleship class that David and Scott lead, and uh, we've been going through the Bible, we go through the Hebrew roots of our faith, and uh, it's really been equipping for people without credentials. David had a heart for, just has a heart for discipleship, as you know, and uh, I've been part of that. I've been very fortunate to be part of it and blessed. And uh, my wife and I are deeply rooted in the 12-step movement and 12-step community here in town. Uh, she manages the Al-Anon office over at Club 12, which is a big uh, Recovery Club off of San Pedro, and I'm an active member in recovery uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we lead a recovery group on Friday nights at, at uh, Asbury United Methodist Church over at 4601 San Pedro called the Pioneer Group, where we study recovery literature. This happens to be the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is our basic text in AA, and it's really the granddaddy of them all, and most of the other 12-step programs have been patterned after this. We also study the, the Bible. We use the New Living Translation Life Recovery Bible, the Bible for people in 12-step programs right there. And that's what we do on Friday nights. But on Saturday night, we lead a worshiping community called Pioneer at Asbury, which uh, is a worship service at 530 on Saturday nights. Everyone is welcome. And it's mostly populated by people in or in need of or interested in 12-step recovery, but it's open to everyone. We do worship and generally talk about a topic that revolves around recovery in one way or another. So, like I said, everyone's welcome, and it's, it's awesome. So, and I've been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous since July 24th, 1999. I've been tobacco-free since June 2nd, 2004. I am in active recovery for compulsive overeating, love addiction, codependence, I am also a son of the Most High God and a follower of Jesus. I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. And you know what? I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. You do like me, don't you? How about now? Do you still? Good. Well, that's about me. How about you? <laughs> no. Uh, let's get on with it here. Any good, uh, any good sermon starts with some sort of uh, 
rabbi story or another story of deep theological significance. So I'm not going to share one of those. I'm going to share this story here. Guy dies and goes to heaven, right? And he shows up at the pearly gates and St. Peter meets him and he starts taking him around and showing him around. Then they come up to one door and they open it up and there's people in there genuflecting and making the sign of the cross and praying with rosary beads. Guy asked Peter, he said, who are these people? Oh, these are the Catholics. Oh, I see. They move on to the next door and they open it up and there's people in there talking in tongues and they're carrying snakes and they're falling out and they're healing each other. Well, who are these people? Well, these are the Pentecostals. Oh, I see. Close the door. Off to the next one. Open it up, and there's people in there naming it and claiming it, and they're listening to tithing messages, and they're having a band up there on big screens. And who are these people? Well, these are the non-denominationalists. Oh, let's see. One more door. Open it up, and there's people in there. They're planning potluck lunches and saying, who is this Wesley guy anyway? You know, I don't know. What, what do you believe? I don't know what I believe. I don't know. Well, who are these people? Well, these are the Methodists. Oh, oh I see. So they go down the hall, they go down the stairs, and there's this long hallway and a doorway down there, and it's really dark. And they, as they approach it, the guy notices there's cigarette smoke coming under the door, right, and all those loud noises. They open up the door, and there's people in there telling each other to keep coming back, and, and they're carrying on, and they're drinking bad coffee, and they're smoking. So who are these people, Peter? Peter says, we're not sure. They're anonymous. But we're hopeful because they say they're only here one day at a time. <laughs> so there you go. You know, when I showed up to AA, we have sponsors. It's kind of a discipleship thing. And uh, we walk in their path because they're people we can trust. They're people that have a solution, and they've been where we've been. They understand the problem, but most importantly, they have a solution. And if we follow their way, hopefully we'll get what they got. And usually that's contented long-term recovery and long-term sobriety. One of my first ones, and still a current one, is a guy named Ben Cartwright. And I said to him, I said, you know, Ben, I don't know if I can stay sober forever. And he said, well, can you stay sober for 24 hours? I said, well, yeah, but not in a row, <laughs> right? And that was the truth. I couldn't. I went for years that way. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit of my story. We would look at the scripture of the week, which is the way, and we'll see if we can't make sense of all this. We'll see if we can't see what kind of loving God we have. We have a God in Jesus that knows the way, and he's been where we've been. We just need to trust in that. Trust in that. Anyhow, as long as I can remember, I walked around life with squirrels in my head and knots in my stomach. I was a nervous kid, way little. But I discovered when I was 13 years old something that would untie that knot and make the squirrels calm down. And that was taking a drink. It worked for me. I was 13 years old. The Kuiper Slow Gin and Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill Wine. Can I get an amen there, anybody? <laughs> It was 1974, 39 years ago. I just told you what brand I drank 39 years ago. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. I might be an alcoholic, right? 
People who aren't alcoholics don't remember the first time. They don't remember their first drink or what they had. But I do because it worked and it was important to me. I had a God-sized hole in me that I didn't realize. And he filled it, and it filled up. That's what filled it up. It worked. You know, when you're all tense and you're all worked up and you find something that makes you go, sweet relief. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. And I did, and it worked for a long time. Worked through high school, worked through college, worked through the beginning of my business career, and it worked for a long time. Until it quit working. One day in 1999, I was playing in a bar band at a, uh, a nightclub, actually kind of a dirtbag bar up on the north side of town. And uh, I had drank a tremendous amount that night. I drank during the gig. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I put the beer down I said, I've had enough. This isn't working anymore. The squirrels are still going and the knot's still in my stomach. I don't know what to do. God, I need help. So the next morning I woke up I announced to my wife, I need some sort of miracle. <laughs> right? I need to find some kind of path to God, I think. Because my whole thing's not working. See, my problem, I thought, was not alcohol. My problem was this. First, I was just too nice to everybody. (laughs) That was my problem. And secondly, this. I was having panic attacks on airplanes, in the back seats of cars, and in the inside seats of booths. I was under the care of a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a pharmacist for my emotional troubles. That's what I thought was wrong with me. So I thought, all right, if I can get a handle on this drinking thing, the other means I'm using to calm down and not have panic attacks anymore, they might work better. So I picked up the phone and I started making phone calls. Started calling people asking where they went to church. Called my dad. Dad, what do Presbyterians believe in? Okay. Nothing? Oh, okay. Good. And I called my friend Mike. And I said, Mike, what do Methodists believe in? And he said, why are you asking? I said, well, I've kind of decided that I need some sort of spiritual guidance, I think, to get over what's going on in my head. And he said, Chris, just hang on a second. I've got somebody here I want you to talk to. So I put this woman on the phone, a woman named Liz, who uh, I started talking to her. And it was weird. I I kept looking at the phone. I don't know what this does, but it's kind of like looking in a mirror. Because she was telling my story back to me. She was sharing her experience, strength, and hope. She was sharing what she was like, what happened, and what she's like now. And an amazing thing happened. I immediately connected. She had these same spiritual questions. She had the same knot in her stomach. She had the same psychiatrist, psychologist, and pharmacist. But now she had a solution. Because she discovered she had a God-sized hole that could only be filled with alcohol. And something had changed. She'd gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she found a path, a way, to a loving God who fills that hole and fills that need. And she no longer had to drink, nor did she want to anymore. So I was interested. I was interested. So I called a friend from business, a guy named Bill D. And uh, my friend Mike had worked for him in the past. I'd known the guy for 12 years. I drank in front of him. 
He never once said anything about my drinking. This man had been sober and Alcoholics Anonymous since 1954. He never once suggested I cut down, cut back, stop, because he'd really do better if you weren't such a drunk. Never. Never. But he made sure I had his phone number. And he made sure my friend Mike, who was a real good friend, a business partner, knew to encourage me to give him a call. So Liz put Mike back on the phone. Mike said, Chris, why don't you call Bill D? I said, I think I will. So I picked up the phone. I said, Bill, this is Chris. I think the party's over. And he said, oh, I've been waiting for your call. Right? This guy had seen a few people like me since he'd been sober since 1954. He knew better than to try to push me into anything. But he knew that I should have his phone number. He knew that he could suggest to a friend that that the friend can point me to, to Bill as a person with a solution for when my day came, my day came, I would have somebody to talk to. He brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been sober ever since. That's kind of instructive, I think. Very instructive. Do we need to play amateur interventionist with people? Probably not particularly as believers in Christ, if we pray, we can be confident that he will show us the way for ourselves and that he will show our loved ones as well the way to be confident in that. Now, we can do some things. We can get better. If you've got an alcoholic or an addict in your life, You don't have to fix them. You don't have to intervene. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. And you can't control it. What you can do is point those people to people like me. People like my wife. People like some of our friends in here. Because we, like Jesus, not only do we have a solution, but we can identify the problem with them. Can identify the problem. So let's look at the scripture before we get too carried away here. And uh, once you stand up, and we're going to recite the scripture. We were in Israel a couple weeks ago, and this was really neat to see. There's a library adjacent to the Western Wall, and in there, there's all kinds of uh, Orthodox Jews in there, you know, praying like this, and they've got their curls and their big black hats. In fact, the Russian Orthodox Jews are interesting. They've got these huge fur hats that they wear, and it's 95 degrees, and they're wearing these huge fur hats. And they're in there, and they're praying, and they've got Torah, and they're reading it out loud. And at some point, out of the prayer closet came a scroll, a scroll. And they paraded it around, and the young Talmudin were going like this. They would touch the scroll with their little finger and then touch it to their tongue because God's word is like honey. So, this comes out of John chapter 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you were going. So, how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
All right, please be seated. This is, these are the very words of God. Meditating on this scripture, I started thinking, I am the way. Jesus is the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what this says to me. This says a lot of things to a lot of people. I mean, it's just pregnant with meaning on every level. But I've been thinking this. What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about it, guys. I've got this. I've got this. You don't have to figure it out. I've got this. I am the way. Follow me. Come, follow me. So that reminded me of my own recovery. Whatever the problem was, I was going to either figure it out or hire somebody. How about you? People who are a little more affluent have a really hard time getting sober. You know why that is? Because we're used to being able to figure it out or hire somebody. Went to a psychiatrist for a while, and I was treating my alcoholism like it was a benzodiazepine deficiency. <laughs> you know, if you got the 175 bucks, you can keep paying the guy, right? You've got insurance, and you can get those things. You know, that works for a long time. That works. Of course, I remember once I was there, and I said, Doctor, there's been a horrible mistake. And he said, what's that? I said, well, this prescription says do not drink alcohol while taking this prescription. And as you know, I drink alcohol. And he says, well, how much do you drink? I said, well, moderately, but often. He said, oh, that's okay. The pharmaceutical companies just, you know, they just want to scare you. I said, oh, okay. See, I thought that was true. I thought it was true. But I just drank moderately, but often. I drank nearly every single day. Remember in high school, my my mother, God bless her, she found my and this, this table reminded me of this. We had a round table like this in our laundry room in the basement in upstate New York. And one morning I walked by it, and I saw, to my horror, my spirit of '76 pocket stash. Perhaps you had one of these. had a had a marijuana leaf on it, right, and a roach clip inside, and had a little something in there. I said, Oh my God, my mother found this. Right? Sure enough, I went upstairs and she said, Chris, what is this? Of course, I explained I was holding it for somebody. It wasn't mine. And uh, I said, here, take it, throw it away, which she did. Well, a couple days later, she gave me a gift. They were barnoculars. Perhaps you've had these or seen these. They look like binoculars. But you can unscrew the top and you can fill it with beverage. So like any good 16-year-old, you go to a high school football game, you have something to drink. See, she was horrified I might be a drug addict. But, you know, having a couple cocktails is just fine. Look at your dad, right, who's a minor drunk himself, right? But, God, drug addict, that's horrible. So, all right, in case any of you are keeping score, that's enabling, okay? That's ena- in case you have any question about that, that that's enabling, And uh, see, what she was trying to do was make herself feel better about herself, actually. And that's what we're doing when we're trying to protect people from themselves. 
trying to make ourselves feel better. There's something we need to do to fix this situation. We can't. Only he can. Only he can. So at any rate, I show up, and I'm one of these guys that thinks he can needs to figure it out or hire somebody. And I discover that that just doesn't work with alcoholism or drug addiction or process addiction. And by that I mean sex addiction, gambling addiction, things that aren't chemical or physical, or chemical or substance, but more like a behavioral. They told me early on that zebras have stripes and alcoholics drink, and it takes an act of God to change either. I knew that was true because I had identified myself as an alcoholic, as defined by the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, which means this, that I'm powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. We have a 12-step program to God. <clears throat> the culmination of it is step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all of our affairs. Like any journey, it begins with the first step. Hopefully she'll put up here and we'll read it again. So we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. What that means and what that meant to me didn't mean that alcoholics necessarily lived under the bridge or drank out of schnapps bottles and brown paper bags with trench coats on. Although I did do that once at a Madonna concert but, <laughs> but we went, we were in the Orange Bowl in Miami. Me and my friend Chuck, surrounded by all these 14-year-old girls and their mothers, and I'm wearing a trench coat because it's rainy, and I'm drinking schnapps out of a brown paper bag. I thought, now, this is bad. This is bad. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? It's kind of creepy sound. All right. You don't have to take the garbage truck all the way to the dump. My bottom happened on my couch. I had just sold a company, right? I had more money than I knew what to do with, and I couldn't get off the couch. I was miserable. My life was unmanageable. And I could not stop drinking. Here was my bottom. Some guys have bottom in treatment. Some guys have bottom in jail. Mine happened on my couch. And it was like this. It was a Tuesday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Watching the travel channel. They're going to Italy. And I thought, God, this would be great to go to Italy. But, man, I could never be on the airplane that long. I have panic attacks on trips to Houston. I could never do that. Oh, they're going to the Piedmont, northern Italy. Boy, that sounds awesome. Piedmont, Piedmont. By this time, I'd become a wine collector. Later, I discovered I was really a wino. Um, but uh, I had my wine collection. I thought, Piedmont, Piedmont. Oh, Barbarisco. I think I've got a bottle of that somewhere. So I went and found my bottle of Barbarisco, poured myself a big glass, sat down, uh, beautiful, and watched the Travel Channel. And I thought, you know, I can't go to Italy. But I can sit here and watch the Travel Channel and drink wine of the region. Thank God for cable television. Right? I thought, this is insane. Right? This is crazy. That was my bottom. That was my bottom. Because it was like the next day where it really quit working. So what that tells me is this. My life had become unmanageable. I was powerless over alcohol. Here's the definition of, of an alcoholic. When I truly want to, for good and all, I find I cannot stop drinking. Or once I start, I have little or no control over the amount I take. What would happen is this. Take the first, sets off a chain reaction in my body that says, more, more. If I have one, I felt crappy. If I had more than one, 
I wouldn't go back to work, is the way that worked. So I admitted this fully. It's powerless over alcohol in my life and become unmanageable. You, know, you really got to bust down pride at that point. Me, all my talents and smarts and what have you, I can't manage this? No. Once I was doing prison ministry, and I was in, uh, up in Gatesville at uh, one of the, the hilltop unit, and I'm in the administrative segregation area where they have them locked up for 23 and a half hours a day and kind of like in a solitary situation. And uh, going down the run, and it's a women's prison. Uh, and this one woman is in there, and she had experience with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so we got to talking and praying, and then I kind of took her through the beginning part of our book again and talked about what it means to be an alcoholic. And then she knew a lot of it already, but, you know, sharing stories, and she's sharing hers, and I'm sharing mine. And so, my, you know, our 15 months was over, and I said, all right, well, so, you know, you're willing to admit you're powerless over alcohol? She said, oh, God, yes. Ugh. You know, I cannot not drink, and I can't stop when I start. All right, good. And your life's unmanageable as well? She said, I'm not sure about that. I said, look where you are. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of got it under control. Oh, okay. Yeah, pride, pride just dies hard. dies hard. Well, I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. The next came the second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. <clears throat> right before, during my blue period at the end there, I remember standing in my bedroom once. My wife asked me for the 10,000th time, what's the matter with you? And I said, I feel as though I'm in the midst of an apocalyptic battle between the forces of good and evil for possession of my soul. And she looked at me and she said, you're crazy. Now look, it turned out we were both right. We were both right. That's exactly what was going on. I had this spiritual thing happening, and I'd gone crazy. So I needed a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. They told me, zebras have stripes, alcoholics drink. It takes an act of God to change either. Now at that point, I thought, man, I'm toast. Because so I missed that class growing up. You know, about the first 12, 13 years, I guess, we'd go to the church, and I, I didn't get it at all. Kind of had stopped at that point. Here I was in my mid-30s, and, uh, man, I, I missed it. See, I thought to be okay with God and to be part of the way and following him that I had to go to a bunch of classes, have somebody in a robe kind of like say, you're okay with God. Give me a diploma. Have my photo made, right? And go out back and have a potluck lunch later. See, that's what I thought. I thought that was the process to get to know God. But it turns out this. You don't have to know God to get to know God. And you don't have to have clean hands before you use the soap either. For me, it was this. Drink too much for too long. Be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Surrender. Ask people for help and start following their direction. And that direction included prayer. When I first sobered up, I started praying because they told me, ask God first thing in the morning to keep you sane and sober and thank him for a good day of sobriety at night. 
and I've done that every day since. And it's worked since July 24th, 1999. I've gotten to see the power of prayer, how God can restore me to sanity. How there is a power greater than myself who's interested in my individual life. I know that because I've made a decision to follow him. Our third step is this. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood it. I did that. My way wasn't working. Figuring it out and hiring somebody, that was a failure. I needed to get on a new path. My way did not work. I needed to get on a new path. And I made a decision to do so. And the way we do that around recovery is this. We take the rest of the steps. We'll just, I'll just run through those quickly. It's, uh, you can go to the next one. It's, uh, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We write down who we're mad at, what we feel guilty about, and who we've harmed. We do an inventory of that. We look at our part in it. Five, we admit it to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. We sit down with another human being and share it with them. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We repent. We agree with God that, okay, this is not your way. This has been my way. I need to live a new way. We repent. Seven. Next. Yeah, go. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. It's our conversion step. So we become true followers. The prayer goes like this. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. May thy will be done. Amen. Next, we make a list of all persons we'd harmed. Became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Jesus says that if you're standing at the altar about to give your gift and you remember somebody's got something against you, Go back and be reconciled to him first. We stay sick if we don't do that. Ten. Continue to make personal inventory, and we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Day by day, I continue to watch for resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear. When they crop up, I ask God at once to remove them, discuss it with somebody, make amends if I've harmed anybody, and then quickly turn my thoughts to who I can help. Eleven sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. It's many good books to read. They, they suggest we talk to our priest, rabbi, or minister as to which ones we can, we can read. Part of being a church member, a follower of Jesus is part of that eleventh step for me. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps... We tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. That happened. I had a spiritual awakening. I got to a point where I knew that I knew that I knew that God was real and he loved me. That he had a plan for my life. That I could follow him and he would show me the way. I have faith in that. I started praying and it started working. The desire to drink was removed. The desire to smoke has been removed. The desire to try to control anybody has been removed. The smoking and drinking thing's gone. I mean, I I just have not been tempted ever since. 
The relational stuff's difficult because you can be totally abstinent from drinking and smoking. It's not going to kick off any kind of craving. But I'm around people a lot. And so sometimes my trigger gets tripped or I allow it to get tripped. That's why I've got to keep coming back. I've got to be with people like me who understand the problem and have a solution. And that solution only happens in the moment, one day at a time, one moment at a time. We do the right thing right now. That's Jesus' way. I told Ben, I said, Ben, you know what I'm doing? What's that, Chris? I'm doing the next right thing. He said, you know, Chris, for guys like you and me, the next right thing is projecting too far into the future. Why don't you try doing the right thing right now? That'll work better. That's true, because if I'm right now doing the right thing, I'm right smack dab in the middle of God's will. Just two more things, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go have a potluck lunch. I was in Israel three weeks ago. Molly was there. My wife, Pat, was there. Who else was there with us? Anybody? We had 20... Oh, Ryan. It's Ryan. Ryan Jacobson. He's the missions director around here. Ordinarily what he does, this is great, this is a little aside, normally what his mission is is to go to third world countries and minister to, you know, underprivileged people. On this trip, his mission was to stand at the back of the line of a group of 24 affluent San Antonians, right, and find new and new, more creative ways to tell them, no, we're not going to the bathroom right this second. That, That was his mission on that trip. And more and more creative ways of, no, I'm not going to tell you where we're going next. Because the way this trip worked is we're on a bus. Pastor Scott Hare would say on the microphone, okay, load up two bottles of water, enough, two bottles of water, two liters of water. And then we would stop someplace. We wouldn't know where we were. And he would say, come, follow me. And then we'd run after him, right? And the next thing you know, we're climbing some mountain or something. And listening to fabulous teachings from him, as you could well imagine. We were following in the footsteps of our rabbi. Right? We were covered in his dust. And on that trip, I decided to do something. Every morning I did this. We would do a devotional somewhere away from the hotel. And then we would have to walk to get to the bus, to wherever we were going. And, and after Scott would do the devotional, I intentionally got right behind him. And I literally walked in his footsteps all the way back to the bus. Now, you know Scott, he's six foot five, so I mean his footsteps are like this. So this is a little difficult. Right? But I stepped, I focused, I focused like a laser right on where his footsteps were and followed him. Walked right literally in them. And then on the trip, on the trail sometimes I would do the same thing. And a couple things happened to me as I did that and I discovered a few things that I think uh, are germane to uh, this scripture that uh, first of all, he knew the way. He knows the way. I'll get to where I need to go if I trust and follow. Just like our Rabbi Jesus. Second is this. Following in his footsteps, I was totally present in the moment. Just thinking about nothing else. I was writing God's will and purpose for me in that moment. I didn't have to figure it out or hire anybody. What I had to do was follow. Just take the next step in life. Thirdly, good rabbi knows when to stop and show me what I need to see. Been doing this healing series the last several weeks. One thing I noticed about that is ever right after Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, 
empowered with authority given him by God. He never went north again. He barely went east or west. He was on his way to Jerusalem. And as his disciples followed him, Jesus wasn't running around looking for people to fix. What he would do, though, is at the appropriate time, he would stop for the one. And then he would show his disciples and show us what to do for the one in the moment. And then he would continue on his way. Scott knew when to stop and say, look at this. Or, Chris, you're about to hit your head on that branch. He, he knew that. And last is this. The rabbi believes in me. And the rabbi believes in you. He knows you can do it. He picked you. He said, come, follow me. I'll show you the way. Just walk in my ways, and I will keep your footsteps firm. He knows I'm capable of the pace he's setting. And so are you. One step at a time, one moment at a time. Got this out of the voice translation of the Bible. God became flesh and lives among humanity. Not just to have a transaction with people and ultimately die, but to continue to be with them and to send his spirit to be present with believers. So God calls his spirit-indwelled people to something greater, something more significant. They are here as redeeming forces on this earth. Their time here is about reclaiming the things he has created. Believing God has created the entire cosmos and that it is restored in Jesus, the believer's work here through the Spirit is to say, this belongs to God, and to help point out the beauty of creation to everyone. And most of all, to live it in themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, who plants the teachings of the, Lord's, of the Lord in their hearts. So we walk it out, a step at a time, one day at a time. We can trust the rabbi. He knows the way. He knows we can do it. Serenity comes then, too. The past is history. The future is a mystery. The present is a gift. If we focus on what we're doing right now, we don't have to figure it out or hire anybody. We just do the next right thing or the right thing right now. No panic attack in that. 